Well, good morning. Uh, you guys, I saw several people in the gym. I thought I got there early this morning about 5.45, and there were about 10 people in there. I think some of you guys in this room might have been there, uh, so uh, congratulations. <laughs> uh, also, I appreciate you all inviting me to speak with you this morning. Um, uh, I remember when I was uh, president of the American Academy of Dermatology way back in 2005, uh, we sort of had a straw poll. We kind of said, how many people in the audience have uh, physician assistants working in their practice? And probably maybe that, oh, just 10 or 15% of the audience held their hand up. And a few years ago, we, we sort of asked that same question, and, and about 70% of the dermatologists kind of raised their hands. So you guys are definitely playing an extremely important role in uh, caregiving and dermatology. You're, you're part of the future of dermatology. Um, so it's very important that you uh, continue doing what you're doing and, and become educated like you're doing in this conference today and uh, learn as much about all the aspects of dermatology as you can. And I'm going to teach you a little bit about dermatopathology this morning. And this isn't like, uh, you know, let's look at uh, basal cell 101, that sort of thing. I'm going to teach you about some kind of tricks and pearls, practical information that you need when you're actually practicing in your, uh, in your practices. And uh, basically, dermatology is different than most other fields of medicine. Uh, if you go into uh, your cardiologist, the test that they're going to do there primarily is, a, is like an EKG or chest x-ray or blood testing, physical exam. In dermatology, the, the number one test that we do is a skin biopsy, as, as you all know. And so you have to understand what a skin biopsy is, how to do it, how to interpret it, how to correlate it with what you see in the patient. Um, if you look at, uh, in, in, in general pathology, for example, uh, the gross pathology is what they wheel in like CSI, you know, on the autopsy table, that sort of thing. In dermatology, the gross pathology is the patient in the office. And so correlating the clinical with what you see in, under the microscope is really very important. So uh, it's, it's, this is it's kind of the, for me at least, one of the most interesting and important things about uh, dermatology is, is looking at things under the microscope and correlating with clinical information. And if you, there actually was one study that was performed a few years ago where they showed if you actually didn't know the answer and you brought your patient to a conference where they showed the pathology and looked at it with a group of people, the diagnostic accuracy went up by 23%. So it's actually been quantified. So let me show you just a couple of examples. Um, this is a case of a 65-year-old woman. She went to just a general family physician, and he did a biopsy, submitted to a lab, uh, just a general laboratory, not a dermatopathology laboratory, as rule-out basal cell. Now, we like for you to put a little bit more information on it than that most of the time, but this is what it looked like. It showed this, uh, uh, what we call a lichenoid infiltrate, band-like infiltrate of lymphocytes with a little bit of epidermal hyperplasia that you can see right here. And on higher magnification, there were some cells that were present in the lower part of the epidermis and some that were kind of in the epidermis itself, and so the, the guys looked at this and noticed that, and they said, well, they thought it might be uh, something serious like mycosis fungoides, and they sent it off to a reference lab, and it came back as a predominance of T-cells. Well, predominance of T-cells doesn't really mean anything. That's normally what we see uh, in any inflammatory skin disease, but their conclusion in this reference lab was that it was probably mycosis fungoides. Well, um, Anyway, the, the clinician talked about the, the mycosis fungoides to the patient, and then, of course, patients instantly today go on the Internet, and they look up mycosis fungoides, and they see pictures of Ali Bear's classic cases with these huge fungating tumors, and they read about the fact that they're going to die and all this kind of stuff, so everybody's really, really worried. And so I remember they came into my clinic, and this was, uh, was grandma was there. She's the one that had the biopsy, and then the, the, her son and daughter were there, and the grandchildren were there, and they all walked in the room, and it looked like I walked into a funeral parlor. I mean, everybody was so just really sad because grandma was going to die. 
<laughs> and I looked at her, and I, and I, I looked at the biopsy report, and I actually looked, they, they brought the slide with me. I took it outside and looked under the microscope, and I came back and I said, well, the good news is you don't have mycosis fungoides. You just have a little solitary papule. It's benign lichenoid keratosis. It's not anything to worry about. I spent some time talking to them about avoiding the sun and skin cancer melanoma education, but boy, they thought I was like God. You know, I had like saved her life because I, I basically told them she didn't have mycosis fungoides. But that's a situation where if you just look at something under the microscope, you can be misled. You have to look at it in the context of the clinical information and what the patient looks like. So you don't really like, to, we don't like to practice dermatopathology in, under, in a vacuum. We think it's very important to correlate what we see under the microscope with what the patient has in the office. If we could see the patient, that's really the best, but if we can't see the patient, we have to rely on what you put on the pathology form. Well, here's another example. This was a little bit more dangerous. This was a younger woman who came into a physician had two years before, had done a biopsy, submitted to a pathologist, again, with not a very good history, just a skin rash. And uh, it was looked at by the pathologist, again, with no clinical information, really, and, and diagnosed it as a lymphoma. And so they referred the patient to an oncologist for therapy. And the patient underwent two courses of CHOP, chemotherapy. I don't know how many of you have ever had chemotherapy, but it's not something you want to get unless you really need it. Um, and her disease went away very quickly, uh, but it seemed to keep coming back after, after each time she got the therapy. So the oncologist was puzzled by this and brought the patient to a skin tumor conference. We have a skin tumor conference at Baylor Medical Center in Dallas, and they brought the patient to that, and I was there. Uh, I know I saw one of the uh, uh, people this morning works with Dr. Alan Mentor. I remember he was at the conference at that time, and there were several other dermatologists there. And so we saw the patient, and the oncologist was, was puzzled, and this is what she looked like. She had this widespread eruption of these individual papules that were centrally necrotic as you see uh, right here. And the biopsy looked like this. It showed a superficial and deep, dense infiltrate, and it had all of these very ugly, atypical cells. And so if you looked at this just under the microscope without any information, you would say, gosh, that sure looks like a lymphoma, and this patient needs CHOP. They need therapy and this kind of stuff. Well, we looked at the patient and noticed this recurring and remitting uh, uh, course, and we said, well, this isn't a lymphoma. This is what's known as lymphomatoid papulosis. I'm sure you all probably have seen a patient or two of this in your, your practices. And uh, we said, this doesn't require uh, chemotherapy. This will respond to PUVA or to just a low-dose methotrexate. So she was placed on PUVA therapy, and she had no further complications and, and did fine. So again, that just shows you how you have to be able to correlate what you see under the microscope uh, with the patient in order to make an accurate diagnosis or you can get into trouble. So how do you get better clinical correlation uh, for your patients? Well, we like to get uh, as much information as we can on a path rec slip. We don't like this where it comes in like a white piece of paper. <laughs> you know, I have one uh, clinician in town, he says, well, I never put anything down there because I don't want to bias you. Well, I, he does bias me because I think he's an idiot. Uh, but <laughs> I like to put I like some information. I want to know, like, if it's a pigmented lesion, how big it is, is it asymmetrical, does it look like a melanoma, don't just put down rule out melanoma. Uh, if it's an eruption, it's nice to know the distribution, is it widespread, localized, is it itch, is it, you know, all this kind of stuff. Now, we don't want you to write a, a textbook in here. Uh, I had one guy a few years ago, he used to write rule out lever, which is a dermatopathology textbook because it was so bizarre, he didn't know what it was. We don't like that. But, uh, but put something down there that's meaningful to us so we can look at that. And, if, and, and I also love to get clinical photographs, by the way. If you want to take a picture of something and, and staple it to the rec slip or say, I'm going to send you an email with some clinical pictures of the patient, 
I love those. I mean, a lot of dermatopathologists don't like it, especially if they're pathologist-trained dermatopathologists, because they say, oh my gosh, you mean I have to actually figure out from looking at the patient. But to me, I, I love getting those. Also, be careful of putting down sort of things like that, just sort of cryptic illusions. Like we got one uh, biopsy one year that said, rule out lung cancer. So, lung cancer in the skin? Well, it turned out the patient had lung cancer, had metastatic disease, all this kind of stuff. If something like that's going on, it's, it's nice to know a little bit more about it. You know, don't just put like roulette leukemia acutis. Um, and then it also, it's nice to tell us if you want margins on your thing, you know, check off the little margin box here. Don't just assume that we read your mind that you always want margins on your dysplastic nevus and that kind of thing. And it's also important to make sure that you can read what you put down on the past slip. This kind of looks more like an EKG than it does like a uh, uh, information, so we really can't, can't figure that out. So, and, and then some people ask for margins on everything, you know, and look at some of these things here. Onychomycosis, okay, that's fungal infection of the nail. Somebody says, rule out, you know, tell us the margins on a fungal infection of the nail. Well, that sort of doesn't make any sense. And so probably the one I thought was the most creative was erythroderma. You know, how are you going to check margins? Somebody's a total body red, you know, but so a lot of people just check off, they want margins on everything. They're kind of not really, they don't really mean it, but they, they do that anyway. And then uh, it's always a good idea, you know, some people just put down the, the, the path rec slip on a previous uh, pathology number, that's kind of not that information. We like to get as much information as we can, not just like locations and things. So it's very important to some of these things like uh, sex, age, um, whether the patient's taking medication, those kind of things. Those are all are important bits of information that we use to make a diagnosis. You wouldn't diagnose, you know, uh, bullous pemphigoid in a 30-year-old woman that's got a widespread blistering disease when she's pregnant, that's going to be herpes gestationis, for example. So if we didn't know she's pregnant and young, you might get the diagnosis of pemphigoid, and that doesn't make any sense, obviously, in that situation. And one of the things to, to kind of remember, too, um, inflammatory skin diseases, you know, they, they don't read the textbook, okay? So most people don't biopsy classic lesions of inflammatory skin disease. When's the last time you saw somebody that just walked in with a textbook beautiful example of psoriasis and you said, oh my gosh, I've got to take a biopsy? Well, you don't really need that in that situation. You really only biopsy it when it's weird. And those are the exact cases that really don't read the textbooks. So those are the ones when you're dealing with inflammatory skin diseases, we really like to get as much information as possible. Uh, these two patients actually had HIV infection here. Um, so they, patients with HIV infection are immunocompromised, and when people are immunocompromised, their skin diseases don't look normal. So again, it's, it's important to know that information. And it's a good idea also, remember that skin diseases look different at different stages of their evolution. So something that, you, if you see like erythema multiforme on day one, it looks a lot different than erythema multiforme on day six, for example. So biopsy put things at different stages of evolution. Say, so, well, I'm going to biopsy an early lesion, I'm also going to biopsy a late lesion, I'm going to tell Dr. Cockrell what, which one I'm doing. And, you know, so those are, are helpful things to do. And certain parts of the body, things look a little different. If you biopsy from the elbow, the knee, that skin diseases look a little weird when you biopsy in those areas. The classic places to biopsy are, are like the trunk, and that's obviously the place that doesn't get you uh, the, uh, uh, anything weird. So biopsy the trunk, and it doesn't usually cause the worst cosmetic result. If something doesn't fit, also, uh, ask for a second opinion, get on the phone, call. I mean, I love to talk to clinicians. So when a clinician calls me thoughtfully discussing a case, that's great. I mean, I, I really like that. And, and many of the people who call me are just like you. They're physician extenders. So uh, to me, that's, that's perfectly, I like that. So you should feel free to give us a call when you have a question. 
now things go wrong. Uh, Murphy's Law, you all know that old story. Uh, if anything can go wrong, it will. Um, you want to make sure that you get a good piece of tissue and get it in the bottle and make sure you see it floating in the bottle. We have a lot of guys that hand the scalpel to the nurse and they expect the nurse to get in the bottle and they walk out to the next patient and well, something happens. And I'd say about every, unfortunately, about two or three times a week in our laboratory, we get a bottle that looks like it's a brand spanking new bottle with nothing in there. That happens fairly frequently. So you want to make absolutely certain that, this, that the material doesn't stay, because when you do a shave biopsy, it'll often stick on the scalpel blade. It doesn't come off so easily. A punch biopsy, sometimes the fat is all that gets in the specimen bottle, not the actual punch that's sitting in the barrel of the punch. So you need to make sure you get that tissue in the bottle and you see it in the bottle floating in there, and you should put the lid on it yourself. You want to make sure that you label the bottle and not just the lid. We have some guys just put a, a stap on the lid or something. I mean, we've had all sorts of things happen with these bottles when they're being transported from the office to our laboratory. We've had automobile accidents on the way into the, into the lab. One year we had a Federal Express airplane that went down with some of our specimens on there. So, I mean, anything can happen. We had fire in the car, burned up specimens, so all sorts of things can happen. And believe it or not, uh, one time we had some of these specimens fell out of a car and, and they actually showed up in the lab because of this. So somebody, a good Samaritan, found it and they sent it to us. So you want to make sure that you label that and you, and you don't just put the, the lid on. Make sure you, you, you label the bottle as well. It's never really a good idea to put more than one specimen in a bottle. Um, like if you have two or three what look like normal moles and you say, well, let's just stick them all in the bottle and send it off to the pathologist. Murphy's Law, one of those is going to be melanoma one of these days, and you're going to have to go back and excise all three of them, and I've seen lawsuits develop over that. I would recommend not throwing away anything. Uh, if you're going to do skin tags, maybe that's another situation, but you might want to put in one or two and say just as representative in the document in the chart that the others looked exactly like that. But even skin tags, occasionally there could be a, a nevus that looks like a skin tag, so beware of that. And, uh, and cysts, that's another thing. Lots of, well, it's just a good old cyst. I don't need to send anything to the lab. I've seen several cases over the years of desmoplastic malignant melanoma diagnosed by good clinical dermatologists submitted as cysts. So things that you think are cysts really can be other things, metastatic neoplasms, necrotic neoplasms. So beware of the good old cyst. Everybody thinks that the cyst is an easy thing to diagnose. Um, it isn't always. Now you also want to keep some kind of a biopsy or logbook, and you want to make sure you review your pathology reports. The worst thing can happen is you get a path report back, you miss it, and it's a melanoma. We had that happen at one of our hospitals at Parkland a few years ago. The patient went for six months with a diagnosis of melanoma that was submitted to the clinic without treatment. And boy, that can result in a lawsuit in a, in a heartbeat. Um, so if something doesn't come back in a reasonable period of time, uh, get on the phone, call the lab, say, how come I reported not back? What happened? Just make sure that something didn't get lost or something like that. So, and if your patient doesn't come back, they have a biopsy diagnosis of basal cell or squamous, and they don't come back, and you try to contact them, you need to send them a certified letter and say, you are supposed to come back, you haven't come back, make sure you've communicated with them in a reasonable way, because those things can end up uh, in a lawsuit as well. Now, what happens if your specimen does get lost? What if yours is one of those that was on that airplane that went down, for example? Uh, well, there's a lot of ways that your specimen can sort of not survive processing. If things are less than about a couple of millimeters in size, it may not make it through the processing process. In other words, these things are, these tissues are put into uh, tissue processors, they're put into cassettes. If they're really, really small, it may not survive. So beware of that. If you take a little teensy tiny papule on somebody's nose, submit it, it may not make it through. So just know that that can happen. Um, 
if somebody, if your specimen does actually get lost and there's still like a, like you say, rule out melanoma, for example, and the specimen gets lost in the laboratory or to the laboratory, if there's still something there, bring them back in and take a piece of it off. One of those, and again, you can do a repeat biopsy if there's anything left. If there's nothing left and you think it might be melanoma, the, the most prudent thing to do, and we've actually had lawyers look at this, is just go back and excise it and then explain everything to the patient. And, and we've never had a lawsuit develop over that if you behave in a reasonable way. Patients are usually, most of the time, very understanding. Uh, so that's something you can do if, if, if it's one of these sort of what they call force majeure. There's nothing you can do to prevent something from happening. Uh, so that's what you can do in that situation. Uh, if it's an inflammatory skin disease, obviously you can take another biopsy. Uh, and we do not charge the patient when this happens. We say this is something that nobody could help, but we're not going to charge the patient anyway. How frequently does this happen? We actually looked at this a few years ago. About seven per three million cases is about the frequency of this, at least when I was with a national company, uh, which is about the frequency of airplane crashes. So it's, it's, it's actually as, as safe as airplane flying. So good news is it doesn't happen very frequently. So another pearl that you can do, let's say somebody comes in with an ugly looking nail and you want to get a quick diagnosis because you might want to put the patient on Lamisil or some other antifungal medication. Um, you can always take the nail and scrape it and do a KOH but you can, or culture, but you can also just take the nail and clip it and stick it in and get a PAS stain. And that's something that's done. It's very quick to do. We can give you an answer back usually in a, in a matter of a day or two. And uh, the only bad thing is that sometimes you can get false negative results. Uh, you got to make sure you get back to the area where the nail is really sort of uh, abnormal looking. If you just clip the outer part of the nail, you know, fungus grows from proximal to distal uh, in some cases. And if you don't get back to where it's kind of abnormal, you may actually miss the fungus. So this is an example of a PAS stain of a nail clipping. You see all these organisms in here. So you can make this diagnosis, and then you can actually get your patient treated with medication uh, repeatedly. Now, what if you get one of these nail clippings back, and you say, this sure looked like a fungus, uh, but it was negative with PAS? Well, you can say, well, it could be a sampling error. But remember that there are certain diseases that can look like a fungus, but they're really not. And that's very important. You want to make sure you're not missing a neoplasm like a melanoma or a squamous cell or wart or certain inflammatory skin diseases. So always consider that. And if you're going to actually, if you, if you are thinking about that it might not be a fungus and something else, you're going to need to do an actual biopsy, not just a clipping of the nail. And that means you actually have to get some of the nail bed epithelium or the nail matrical epithelium. And one thing that is a pearl to remember, before you do a nail biopsy, it's never a bad idea to do an x-ray. Uh, see if there's some kind of bony abnormality or something like that that may be causing it. Most dermatologists don't do uh, x-rays, but it's something to think about. Now, here's a real-world example of where we got a nail clipping, um, and this was sent in as rule-out fungus, and you can see it kind of looks kind of grungy here when you look at it in the microscope. It's got a lot of purulent debris and some nail plate material here, and so we started looking at this, and we kind of noticed that there was also all this hemorrhage, but there was also this pigment here, and uh, we actually did a special stain, and it turned out that that pigment was melanin. And so I called the clinician. I said, you know, this has got melanin in here. It's, it's, got, it's no, no fungus. Um, is there any chance it could be something else? And lo and behold, it turned out she had a subungual malignant melanoma that was causing nail dystrophy. She went back and took an actual biopsy, and the diagnosis of melanoma was made. And we didn't call it melanoma on the nail clipping, but we suspected possibly melanoma. And I was just at a conference last weekend, and one of the dermatopathologists from Penn said he's seen this himself several times. So just understand that a lot of things other than fungus can cause ugly-looking nails. Um, this is another guy, 39-year-old gentleman, who's a former radiation technician who came with this long-standing nail dystrophy, and he'd been treated with antifungals for months, and it wasn't getting better. So that should be a, a clue 
Um, there's a definition Einstein had of insanity, and that's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Um, so you don't want to keep treating patients over and over again with the same medication who's not getting better. Start thinking that maybe something else is, is causing it. So you see he's got this ugly-looking uh, area on his nail, and this was biopsied, and lo and behold, it turned out to be a squamous cell carcinoma or Bowen's disease. And I've seen that myself several times over the years as well. So just remember, everything that looks like fungus in the nail unit isn't fungal infection. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about biopsy uh, technique. Um, you may be told that a good technique to do for possibly uh, melanoma, for example, or maybe even certain other skin cancers is a punch biopsy. And I'm going to tell you today, I don't like punch biopsies for broad melanocytic lesions. And there's, there's a reason I'll talk to you about it in a moment. Um, but people think, well, you know, biopsy the darkest area. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the most uh, dangerous area. We see uh, uh, lesions like nevi and solar lentigenes. They get uh, traumatized. They get bleeding into that area, and it looks black, and you biopsy it, and lo and behold, that's a, a benign area. Or there may be the melanoma that's amelanotic off to the side. So that's really not a very good technique. It also sort of produces what we refer to as this uh, biopsy sculpture. I'll, I'll give you an example of that in a moment. If you are going to punch, you should try to punch out the entire lesion if you can. If you've got a four millimeter lesion that's a dysplastic nevus that you think is possibly melanoma, you can do a five millimeter punch of that and you're basically punching out the entire lesion. So that's like an excisional biopsy. But if it's a 20 millimeter lesion and you do a three millimeter punch, that's prone to sampling error. And I don't like multiple small punches either. That's sort of like, uh, I'd rather look at a panoramic view of something rather than something that's, that's multiple small. And so when you kind of punch into something, it's kind of like this. You're sort of like Longfellow shooting an arrow in the air. You really don't know where it's landing. So this looks like a flower. But what it really is is the fuse on this little bomb here. And this looks like a benign nevus. It's a punch biopsy. And so some of the things we look at under the microscope to decide whether something's benign or malignant is breadth, symmetry, circumscription. Uh, this looks small, symmetrical. Uh, we don't really know how broad or, or all that kind of thing it is. But it makes it look benign because it's got this nice little cookie-cutter type morphology. Uh, it doesn't have any epidermal involvement, but we go to higher magnification. It's got all these large atypical mitotic figures. And this is an example of a nevoid malignant melanoma that was actually misdiagnosed as a nevus, largely because of this so-called punch biopsy sculpture uh, technique that they did here, and it, it allowed the diagnosis to be missed. So this lesion here, where are you going to biopsy? You know, well, this is, looks like a seborrheic keratosis, and in this case, this was actually a melanoma that was contiguous to a seborrheic keratosis. I'd much rather have a shave of the entire thing so that we can then go back and, and look at it under the microscope. Now, this, this isn't very good here. This is, this is not trick photography. This is about the same magnification as that other thing. The person took like a one millimeter punch biopsy of this lesion, and you can see it's got all this gray spaghetti in the dermis. That's solar elastosis from people that spend a lot of time out in the sun in Texas. And you can see it's got some melanophage. It's got a few melanocytes here and there. Very subtle. I mean, we see solar lentigenes all the time that look like this. Well, this actually was called probable evolving melanoma in situ, and they recommended complete excision. And uh, I can tell you, I've seen a lot of cases a lot more florid than this that were just called solar linigo and nothing else was done. So this guy had a, a guardian angel sitting on his shoulder when he actually had uh, the biopsy done that day. And this was a re-excision, and it actually showed obvious melanoma in situ on the re-excision. It even showed some cells in the dermis on the re-excision. So don't do small punch biopsies of broad lesions. It's not a good thing to do. You say, well, I, I can't excise this whole thing. How am I going to biopsy this? I would 
tell you to take a broad shave of, of an area here, or you can maybe even take a couple of areas, or take an incisional biopsy. Take a, a broad, linear, uh, like a small little incision. You don't have to take out the whole thing, but you can take an incision like a piece of pie and send that in and get it over, make it about, you know, almost a centimeter or so if you get something like this. And that'll give you, a, you'll be much more likely not to have a sampling error. So I'd rather have saucerization techniques. So I'm not, we're not talking about superficial shave. We're talking about something, and this is, these are biopsies for diagnosis, not for cosmetics. You know, if somebody comes in with a fibrous papule on their nose and they're a 20-year-old model and they want it off so they look good in the, in the magazines, that's different. But if we're doing something for diagnosis, you want to make sure that your specimen is representative so that you're not going to miss the diagnosis. And that's very, very important. And it'll also, if you get this broad sample, you'll get deep enough where we can detect melanoma and give you a pretty accurate thickness measurement. So this is the kind of thing that we like to see, something that allows us a panoramic view. We can look at the breadth, symmetry, circumscription, so you don't feel like you have to excise every possible melanoma. And again, some of these you're going to think could be melanoma, but maybe only about 40% chance. But you can take a deep, broad saucerization and get a diagnosis. So here, this is the same power as that little teensy, tiny lesion. This guy didn't think this was melanoma. He thought it was a basal cell. So he did a saucerization, which is good. It went to the base, so there's dermis beneath this. And lo and behold, it turned out to be a melanoma. It was relatively amelanotic. It had a little bit of melanin in it, but he was able to get a diagnosis and a measurement, and he treated the patient appropriately. But if he would have done a very superficial biopsy or punch, it might have been missed. So just remember that. And this is something I would, if, if anyone ever tells you to do this technique, um, tell them I said, we're going to go out in the alley and take off our, uh, our shirt, and we're going to have a fist fight. Because, you know, I don't want this technique to be done anymore. I mean, this is something that should go away. Uh, these superficial shave and curatage biopsies. Now, where did the curatage biopsy come from? Well, back in the uh, early 20th century, maybe late 19th century, um, there is the, you know, those DNC curettes that you use for curating off basal cells. Some of the older dermatologists would take that and like a watermelon scoop, they would like do a big thick saucerization biopsy using that curette and they would produce basically essentially a deep saucerization biopsy that you do with a scalpel or a razor blade today. Well, unfortunately, that sort of got bastardized and guys started doing this type of technique where they kind of just barely scrape the curette over the surface of the specimen, and they end up getting this fragmented sort of goo here that you're supposed to make a diagnosis on. Well, this was a medical legal case turned into a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Um, this was diagnosed as epithelial hyperplasia. Uh, this biopsy was taken by a non-dermatologist who did this uh, little curatage biopsy, and this was called epithelial hyperplasia. And if you start looking at it, it's got a few kind of nests of melanocytes here, and then this little tiny fragment of tissue here there's melanoma throughout the epidermis that was missed by the pathologist. And so unfortunately, the pathologist got named in the case. He ended up losing. Uh, the family physician that did the biopsy, interestingly enough, got dropped in the lawsuit. So the lawsuits aren't fair, uh, but nevertheless uh, turned into a big problem, mainly because of the biopsy. So, so don't do this type of biopsy. Even if you think it's a ward or it's the most obvious thing in the world, don't do this type of biopsy. Okay, so. So anyway, so uh, let's shift gears a little bit. What if you're dealing with an inflammatory skin disease? Um, punches are great for that. Um, you know, shades are not so good for inflammatory processes. We like to be able to look at the depth of the specimen, not just the surface of it. So if you're doing a shave, that's not good for inflammatory conditions, okay? So there you do want to do a punch or an incision. And so, um, you know, these inadequate biopsies, you know, you, you'll often have to bring the patient back in for a second biopsy. It's more expensive. Uh, patients get mad. They may switch dermatologists and everything. So it, treat the biopsy like it's a treasure. Like if you were having a biopsy done on yourself, 
You want to do that the same way to your patient. I'm sure most of you all do that already, but uh, you'd be surprised how many times we have to send back a report that says just fragment of skin, can't really make a diagnosis. So it's always a good idea to do, do that. Um, let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> special stains. Uh, we get a lot of uh, uh, special stains for fungus. If you're biopsying or you're doing a special stain for fungus involving hair follicles, you actually have to get the hair shaft that's infected with the fungus or maybe artifactually negative. So you see a little kid that comes with alopecia, you maybe treat him with griseofulvin or, or lamicil or whatever you're using, and it doesn't get better, so let's take a biopsy. You've got to actually make sure you get the hair shaft and it's sampled in the specimen. If you don't get the hair shaft, it may be artifactually negative. Um, so another thing is just we see all the time is, is a lot of clinicians tell us to order PASs on stuff. Well, you know, 99% of the time they're negative. When a clinician says, please do a PAS, we sort of look at it and decide whether we need to do a PAS or not. PAS is, is not cheap. It costs money to the patient and, and the insurance plans and everything. So uh, we would rather us decide if it's necessary. If it doesn't fit and you call up and say, well, this could be a fungus, and did you do a PAS, and say no. In that case, sometimes it's positive, but the vast majority of the time when people just kind of reflexly say, do PAS for every papulosquamous disease, 99.9 .9 times out of 100, it's negative. Um, I will say one thing, though, when we get biopsies that come in and say eczema, negative KOH, we often do do a PAS, and we often do look hard for fungus, and we often find it in that situation. So here's an example of tinea capitis. He's got this uh, crusted area here on his, his scalp, and you can see that there's uh, involvement of this follicle here, and you can actually see the hyphae in the hair shaft here, even without a PAS, so we don't even need a PAS 99 times out of 100. But if you do a PAS, you can see that it's strongly positive, but notice that it's only in the hair shaft. If you actually did the PAS looking at the stratum corneum, it's often negative. So if you, if you really think it's a fungal infection of the hair, you have to like sometimes order multiple special stains. So here's an example. This guy said, is it roulette lichen planus or lichen sclerosis? Please do a PAS. Turned out it was morphia with features of LSNA. We really didn't need a PAS, but people order it and they tell us to, and it's kind of a waste of, of time and energy. And here's an example of, uh, of morphia with lichen sclerosis. It was PAS negative. Now, here's an example, again, at a higher magnification of a biopsy that shows some abnormalities in the cornified layer. And we can actually see hyphae in here, right here, without a PAS. So, again, if you tell us to do a PAS, we're going to do it, but it's kind of a waste of, of time, so you don't really necessarily need to, to tell us that. Um, again, I mentioned this a little bit before, that if you biopsy certain parts of the body, the elbows, knees, uh, acral skin, things look a little weird. So if you really want to get a good diagnosis, it's better to stay away from those areas. Um, there are certain parts of the body where nevi look weird, and this is important. If you biopsy the ear, the scalp, certain flexural areas, the groin, the breast, especially in women, a lot of those nevi can simulate melanoma or dysplastic nevi. They're still benign. So if you get back, if you biopsy, say, somebody's ear like a 20-year-old man or woman, um, and it comes back as melanoma, you say, boy, that didn't look anything like a melanoma, get a second opinion, because it may be a spitzoid morphology of a nevus that's not uh, melanoma. The other thing is, if you, buy, if you look at nevi that have been sunburned, those often simulate melanoma. Best not to biopsy a nevus when it's been sunburned. Okay, so this was an ear, 21-year-old guy. This was actually misdiagnosed as desmoplastic malignant melanoma. He was, a, a, he was very upset about that. We got a second opinion. We said it's not melanoma at all. It's just a spitzoid morphology that we very commonly see on the ear. These cells get large, they get angulated. You can sometimes get a little pagetoid spread, but this is not melanoma. It's a totally benign lesion, and just understand that that's 
one of the things that we see in areas like the ear. The breast also can look sometimes like melanoma. These cells can get large. They have more abundant cytoplasm. They have more abundant melanin. Uh, sometimes get a few cells above the junction, but it's not melanoma. They don't get mitotic figures. These lesions are small, symmetrical. So beware if somebody sends you back a diagnosis that doesn't make sense. It's like the old Johnny Cochran. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. If it doesn't fit here, get a second opinion. You know, check on it, and you want to make sure that it correlates with clinical information. And this is a nevus that was sunburned. So a lot of dyskeratotic keratinocytes here. These, nevi, uh, these, these cells are above the dermal junction, so again, they can simulate melanoma. This lasts about six weeks. Okay, so if somebody goes to a tanning parlor, gets burned, or they go outside and get sunburned, their nevi gets sunburned, six weeks for this to go away. So just remember that as well. And here's one of the sunburn cells um, in the epidermis. Um, just a couple other biopsy pearls, uh, granulomanulari. There's a lot of variants of GA. Um, this can simulate a lot of things, including mycosis fungoides, morphia. There's a so-called interstitial type of GA that doesn't give you rings. It gives you kind of flat patches, usually on the inner thighs and on the trunk in many cases. So just remember that. And, and you may say uh, uh, that it's, uh, you may think it's morphia and MF. You may, in that situation, you may say it doesn't fit. And you may call and say, well, this is a rare variant that can fit. Um, one thing I would caution you about, though, if you see somebody that comes in with a weird case of GA in an older person, think about the possibility that they might have something else going on underneath that driving it. GA can be a perineoplastic process. It's not really true GA. It's sort of a GA-like process. We see that interstitial granulomatous dermatitis associated with connective tissue diseases. We see the same thing in, in, uh, in associated with uh, underlying cancer. So an older person gets a weird GA, work them up, make sure they don't have a neoplasm. Um, we also see patients that come in with a bright red erythema. They've been out in the sun and do a biopsy, shows no inflammation. And that's something to remember as well. It's what they call this photodermatitis erythema. Um, and again, they're often taking an NSAID or some kind of medication. Uh, we also sometimes see PCT that's got a lot of inflammatory uh, infiltrate in it. Um, if you get a diagnosed back of melanoma in situ and then you excise that, in many cases, it's going to show some dermal involvement. So it's something else to be prepared for. So, you know, it may come back in one study, it showed up to 40% had some dermal involvement. That's probably a little higher than we see in our laboratory. Uh, but nevertheless, beware that if you get melanoma in situ, you may want to treat it in the office. It may come back thicker. You may have to refer them out to a surgical oncologist for even a second excision. Um, the other thing is that sometimes you'll get a biopsy, and then you get a re-excision, and it looks different on the re-excision. And it wasn't a misdiagnosis the first time. We'll see lesions that are classic basal cells on an original biopsy. Go back and re-excise it, and then it's got some areas of squamous differentiation. Or we'll see an area that looks like a spindle cell lesion, and then you go back and re-excise it, and it may show obvious melanoma or something like that on the re-excision. Uh, dysplastic nevi. Uh, we'll get biopsies of these, go back and re-excise them, and there's obvious melanoma in situ that wasn't sampled in the original biopsy. So uh, just be aware that you'll occasionally see different things when you actually do uh, the excision versus the biopsy. Now, a lot of people ask for margins on shave biopsies, and these are not the same thing as margins that you get when you do an elliptical excision or you do Mohs, okay? So if you're doing a shave biopsy of a basal cell or of a dysplastic nevus or whatever, and you say, well, is it out? Well, I can't be sure it's out because I don't have like an elliptical piece of specimen and I can red loaf through it or I don't have a Mohs specimen, I can look at the entire thing. All I can tell you is that in the few sections I've got, it doesn't go to the base or to the sides. I don't know if it goes deeper into the block. I don't know if there's a skip area that wasn't sampled when you actually did the shave or the, or the punch biopsy. So 
These are only uh, seems to be removed notes that we can put on here. Very important because that's not the same thing as an elliptical excision. So if you do a shave of a basal cell, say, well, did, did I get it all? Say, we're not sure. It seems like it, but we're not sure. Um, every single biopsy that you do is prone to sampling error. Remember that as well. Okay, and we often will put a note on this record sort of calling it to your attention, putting a spotlight on it, but you need to be aware that that can happen every single time. When you do an excision, it's a good idea to put a stitch in it because if it goes to a margin, we can tell you with respect to that stitch which margin's involved. Is it three, six, nine o'clock? So we can tell you, and that way, if, if it does involve one area, you can just go back and say, I'm just gonna take out a little bit more at that site rather than having to re-excise the whole thing. If you don't put a stitch in, we can't tell you that. So that's a good pearl to, to do when you're doing an excision. Now, um, I don't like to, to report margins on biopsies. You probably could tell that from my statement before. Um, but, you know, I've had guys call and tell me, uh, don't ever put it on there again. You know, and, and, and I like those kind of guys when they do that. Uh, sometimes what will happen is a patient will say, well, it, it says it's out, but you're telling me you have to go back and do a re-excision. So they're confused. Um, some, we've had even insurance companies call clinicians and say, you did an unnecessary surgery because your original biopsy said it was removed. So I, I personally don't like it. And uh, you often get back uh, recurrences. You know, these lesions come back, they're often multifocal, so you may think it's out. And I would never ask for margins on a melanoma biopsy. We have some people that they do a shave of melanoma in situ and they say, is it out or not? Well, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rely on that ever. So you really never should assume that a shave of melanoma is, is adequate treatment. And this is maybe, if you take one thing home from this lecture today, so I don't want anybody in this room to forget this. If you're really worried about the diagnosis clinically, let's say you really think it's a melanoma, and it comes back like a dysplastic nevus or benign, you should go ahead and excise it anyway, okay? I'm not in the office. I don't know what the thing looks like. And so I've seen cases like this where just for some reason the pathologist flat didn't, wasn't representative for one reason or not. So a final diagnosis really depends on several things, clinical pathologic correlation, sometimes genetic studies, all sorts of things. And so sometimes the clinical diagnosis trumps the histologic diagnosis. And I have the utmost respect for a well-seasoned clinical dermatologist and you that are seeing patients. So again, ask questions, call, refute the diagnosis. Our goal is to come up with the right diagnosis, uh, not to be right. And I have some guys that argue about diagnoses with clinicians. I, I never do that. So I'm very believe in flexibility. So you don't want to assume that we're giving you the Ten Commandments. You need to be critical. You need to think. You need to say, hey, wait a minute. This doesn't make any sense. Is this in the best interest of my patients? And if it is, then you want to go back and, and question us and, and necessarily go back and, and maybe excise it, whether it seems to fit or not. Okay. Um, Keratoacanthoma and squamous cell carcinoma, these lesions very commonly, they appear very, very similar to one another. I still use the diagnosis of KA. A lot of guys say, well, aren't people calling them all squamous cell carcinoma, keratoacanthoma type? I don't like that because it means you have to go back and re-excise it and treat it like a cancer. A lot of these lesions can be treated conservatively with injections with methotrexate or 5-FU or even sometimes just, uh, just follow them. They may actually regress following your biopsy. So if you call them all squamous cells, you're obligated to actually go back and excise everything. So I personally don't like that. I think that there are KAs that come up quickly with trauma. They look different under the microscope and they're not all squamous cell carcinomas. Um, if you biopsy volar skin, you may think you're doing a really deep biopsy, but the cornified layer on volar skin, especially these, some of these guys that have these real thick uh, 
palms and soul. You may biopsy down to about maybe half a millimeter or so before you even get to any epithelium. Even a punch gives a hard time getting through that thick cornified layer sometimes. So you may have to take a deep punch and bury it to that white plastic you know, part or even do an incisional biopsy when you're on skin that looks like that. And that's especially important when you're dealing with a verrucous carcinoma. If you just take a superficial shave of a verrucous carcinoma, you're gonna come back with a diagnosis of wart 99 times out of 100. So you have to make sure that you take an incisional biopsy of that. And here's an example at the top of a keratoacanthoma by shave technique and a squamous cell carcinoma. You can see how close they simulate one another. They can look very much alike. So this is another area where you really need clinical correlation and you might, uh, and deeper biopsies are better than, than superficial biopsies. And this is verrucous carcinoma, a shave biopsy of that, it looks just like a wart. So this is a lesion that's cancerous because of its deep extension. These things get down into tendon and bone. Um, you need an x-ray or an imaging study on this and you also need to take an incisional knife and fork biopsy as, as Dr. Eichhorn in our community uh, refers to it in order to get an accurate diagnosis of this lesion. So superficial biopsies again are not gonna work here. Okay, let's shift gears again, and we'll talk about immunofluorescence. I'm sure a lot of you guys do immunofluorescences in your practices. Um, and so uh, the good news about immunofluorescence is when it works and it's positive, it's great, and everybody's happy, and we really think it's great. Unfortunately, immunofluorescence often doesn't save the day. It's not like the, uh, uh, the rescue boat on the Titanic. It, it, it's, not, it's something that should be used in adjunctive to everything else. It's just another bit of information. And for lupus, it's unfortunately not that great. Most of the time when it's positive in lupus, you don't need immuno. It's so obvious clinically or histologically that the immuno is kind of worthless. And one of the things that we get is where people come in and they biopsy rosacea thinking it's lupus, and they may get back one positive IgG at the dermoepidermal junction, and then somebody calls it consistent with lupus, and then they end up carrying around a diagnosis of lupus for years, and that's not good for the patient either. Uh, so if it's multiply immunoreactants and it's positive, it's usually, it's great, but in that case, it's usually so obvious clinically and histologically you don't really need it. And the lupus band test is sort of a historical test today. If you want to argue with somebody, um, this is a good one to pick. If an internist tells you to do a biopsy for lupus band test, tell them, say, well, I just heard a lecture by Dr. Cochran. He told me to tell you that you should go jump in a lake because a lupus band test is not a very good tech test for this. It's better to do double-strand DNA or some of the serologic studies. Those are much more accurate in detecting systemic lupus than a lupus band test. We see a lot of these in papers of rip-roaring lupus, and it's negative, or people that have a false positive because it's on sun-damaged skin. So beware of the lupus band test. It's also usually negative in dermatomyositis and scleroderma and these other connective tissue diseases. We get a lot of people that just say connective tissue disease and they just splash it in the immuno bottle and send it in hoping sort of like a shotgun they're gonna get an answer back and uh, that usually doesn't do anything. And it actually is sometimes confusing in trying to distinguish between dermatomyositis and subacute lupus because those can look very, very similar under the microscope and it's often really better to do a routine evaluation of your patient in serologic studies than biopsies and immuno in that situation. And the other thing is we get immunofluorescent studies sometimes that don't make any sense. They say contact dermatitis, mycosis, fungoides, et cetera. At least something on there should be positive. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we get these, these uh, uh, differential diagnoses that none of them you'd expect to be positive for immuno. So immuno is pretty expensive, so you don't want to really do it. Um, unless you really are a high suspicion for, for disease that it's going to be positive. For immunovasculitis, it's also not that great. Um, if the lesion is over than 24 hours, it's going to be artifactually negative in many cases. The best situation is if you're trying to define Henoch-Shinline purpura, because that's going to have a positive immunoglobulin A. 
Um, we get clinicians once again that they'll biopsy and it says vasculitis and they say, well, what's causing the vasculitis? Well, we don't know. It could be lupus, it could be Wegener's, it could be a lot of things. It, if it's positive or IgA in the vessels, then it could be HSP, but that's one of the few cases where immuno can actually help you in vasculitis. Now, urticarial vasculitis also, we get lots of biopsies of routine urticaria to rule out vasculitis. For every case of real art garden variety, uh, true urticarial vasculitis that we see, we probably see a thousand or more just garden variety urticarias. So this is extremely rare disease. And if you're just biopsying every urticaria you see to rule out vasculitis, that's not really a good technique either. It's best to work the patient up, look at their complement levels, see if they've got classic other findings and underlying systemic illness. This is a very low yield uh, biopsy to do, and, and we get a lot of them. So this is an immunofluorescence direct immuno showing IgA in the blood vessels of somebody that did have HSP. If you see this, it's great, uh, but in the most of the cases of your routine vasculitis, it's not going to be positive. Uh, if you're biopsying a blistering disease, and this is really the best technique when you're going to use immunofluorescence um, is, is, is blistering diseases, it's best to biopsy an urticarial lesion. So in other words, this is bullous pemphigoid. Biopsy this area as opposed to the blister. This will give, for at least for immunofluorescence, this is good. And you can biopsy a little bit of normal skin in an urticarial area. You're going to get back a good diagnosis in that situation. Make sure you put this in the right medium. Uh, we use Michelle's transport media. You can use saline, whatever. But don't put it into formaldehyde because it's, it's the immunoreactants are gone at that point. So you've got to get it in the right media. Uh, I always recommend that you do a routine H&E and immunofluorescence. Um, we do a frozen section also, but that's not as good as looking at an H&E. These are complicated diseases, so you want to do a biopsy for routine hematoxin and for immunofluorescence when you're doing these two different biopsies. And don't try to cut it in half also. Have you ever tried to saw a three millimeter, four millimeter punch biopsy on a Mayo stand in your, your practice? It's kind of like trying to cut a rubber band. You know, it's not easy to do. So it's better to just take two biopsies and just submit them. Um, don't just basically uh, try to cut it in half. And immunofluorescence, about 95% are positive for pemphigoid, but there's about 5%, even though the textbooks say it's 100%, about 5% of the time we'll see patients that have truly negative direct IF and they really do have bullous pemphigoid. They have the classic features. So just remember that sometimes it can be artifactually negative. If you still think it's pemphigoid, you can do an ELISA study or something like that, indirect immunofluorescence, kind of uh, confirm the diagnosis. So again, we don't like doing this because this floats away. If the roof of the blister floats off in the specimen, it can be artifactually negative. It's really better to biopsy. If you're going to biopsy a blister, biopsy some normal skin or just biopsy an area that's adjacent to the blister that's got that red urticaria morphology and you get back a diagnosis. So if you biopsy the blister itself, the immunoreactants can degrade and can be artifactually negative. Here's a positive and then it kind of goes away negative because the blister itself was sampled. So biopsy in that area. You can also, if you're trying to distinguish between epidermolysis blosa acquisita and bullous pemphigoid, you can take a normal biopsy of normal skin. We can incubate that in one molar sodium chloride and then we do an indirect immunofluorescence using antibodies to the skin to see if it maps to the roof or to the base of that artifactually induced blister. That's a rare disease, but that's something you might need to do in, in certain cases. So in this case, this was bullous pemphigoid. The binding of the immunoreactants was on the roof of the blister as opposed to the bottom in this salt-split skin-induced blister. And uh, again, this was at the roof more than the base in this case, and this was on the base of that salt-split skin blister. So that's how that, those diseases can be distinguished from one another. You can also actually biopsy a blister itself and do type 4 collagen and that actually should bind uh, to the roof if it's EBA. In this case, it was binding at the base, and that was bullous pemphigoid in this situation. 
Now, you're also going to be getting back reports of uh, new techniques that are being done. I'll talk a little bit about this near the end of the talk as well, if we have enough time. Um, gene rearrangements, these are helpful, but they're not pathognomonic of anything. I've seen scabies with gene rearrangements. I've seen mycosis fungoides with classic features with no gene rearrangements. So uh, just be aware, you have to take these things in the context of other information. Uh, immunoperoxidase stains also, not 100%. They should be used in the context of everything else. Uh, we've seen some poorly differentiated neoplasmas not stained with anything. I've seen cases of S100 protein negative melanoma. Uh, so just be aware that, uh, that some of these things are not 100% uh, reliable. Uh, we used to think that if you did a, a, worked up a lymphoma, it was going to be CD20 positive for B cells, CD3 positive for T cell lymphomas. Well, these always have an admix pattern. So you can notice that the CD3, although staining the T cell areas, there's some staining of the B cell zones, and the reverse is true with the CD20 marker staining T cell areas as well, and that's on a normal lymph node. So this is a cutaneous lymphoma. It was CD20 positive, but there were also reactive T cells in the infiltrate. Sometimes there's even more than that. In mycosis fungoides, uh, there we're looking for ratios between CD4 and CD8 positive cells and loss of antigens, like loss of CD7 and CD2 in some cases. So uh, that's how we use them, you know, for uh, peroxidase for mycosis fungoides. And continuing this theme, uh, sometimes we'll get uh, this, these uh, people are trying to use immunofluorescence and immunoperoxidase to try to define whether melanoma is, whether melanocytic lesion is benign or malignant. And they're using stratified staining with HMB45 antigen. They're saying, well, the pattern is more likely to be melanoma if there's less staining at the bottom. It sort of goes along with there being less uh, maturation. But there's a lot of overlap in that situation. I personally don't use it in my laboratory. I still think the best technique is routine morphology and looking for some of the things that we've talked about before, we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, we see uh, positive staining with CD30, which is seen in lymphomatoid papulosis and a lot of inflammatory diseases. Um, cellular dermatofibroma can stain with CD34, as can neurofibroma. So if just CD34 positivity does not mean dermatofibrosarcoma pertuberans. Uh, this is an example of a Spitz's nevus, and this is what it looked like clinically. And this is a MIB1 stain or key 67 which is a proliferation marker. I don't use this in my laboratory either. It is a sign that the cells are proliferating. But we see proliferation in a lot of benign lesions and traumatized nevi and spitzes nevi. So it doesn't mean melanoma. And, you know, when people start doing all these stains, it kind of means that they're really not sure what the answer is. So the longer the report, unfortunately, the less usually somebody knows. And uh, here you see this MART1 stain. It's, it's diffusely positive. Uh, again, that's, that's a Spitz's nevus here. It really didn't help in distinguishing between benign and malignant in this situation. Now, shifting gears again, we're going to talk about some infectious diseases. Um, Basically, the, the classic pattern under the microscope that we see with an infectious disease is separative granulomatous inflammation, uh, and then we do special stains, and we hope that they're positive. But in a lot of cases, you, you know it's got to be an infection. You do an AFB or FIT stain and a PAS stain, and it's negative. So in those cases, you may have to rely on other things, like you may have to send it off for PCR. You may have to do uh, other studies, like uh, people forget about skin testing and serology and x-rays and dermatology. So even though we do biopsies as our number one test, don't forget about these other techniques uh, that are available to us. This was a guy that we saw a few years ago that had HIV infection, had this chronic uh, crusted plaque on his uh, leg. He'd been biopsied multiple times. Multiple stains were performed. We knew this had to be an infection, and we never could really grow anything out. Uh, finally, we did an immunoperoxidase stain that revealed a few positive organisms in here uh, to an AFB, even though nothing ever grew. So we empirically treated them on the basis of this, and it went away. So in some cases, you're not able to identify an organism. You see things in the, in the tissue that with these special techniques or with PCR that can help you. You may just have to kind of empirically treat. And uh, 
Actinia can, can imitate a lot of things. We sort of know syphilis can imitate a lot of things, but remember dermatophytes can do that. Hansen's disease can do it. Um, beware of patients that are immunocompromised. When somebody's immunocompromised from HIV infection or, or some of the new biologics or other chemotherapy, uh, skin diseases look weird in those situations, so things aren't going to look the same. And then uh, we're beginning to see diseases coming up in weird locations now, like leash mania um, in North Texas. We actually wrote that up a couple of years ago. Uh, this was a guy that had coxie. He was a military recruit, had these widespread lesions and had diabetes. Another example of coxie, just an ulcer. I mean, gosh, that could be 100 things, and it turned out to be coxie. And this was the biopsy. It shows this very diffuse inflammatory infiltrate. Uh, this one did not show the classic suppurative granulomatous inflammatory pattern. This showed more of a sarcoidal pattern. But you could see there actually were spherules in here uh, that you could make out with higher magnification. So that was coxideromycosis, and here you see it with a special stain. And remember people that travel. I mean, today in this global era, people that hop on an airplane and go anywhere in the world and they come home, uh, they can bring home weird diseases. Um, they also bring home common diseases. And usually dermatologists are, are pretty savvy about this. They'll say the guy's been to Africa and he comes back with a skin rash, and they'll write on their big red letters, rule out Ebola or something like that. You know, they're really worried about it. And it turns out they got staph or something banal. But, but every now and then they do have something weird. So you do have to kind of think about it. And you have to watch out for the pseudocarcinomatous hyperplasia. The epidermis can get really markedly verrucous, and it can look like a cancer. Uh, if you're not sure about that, it's never a bad idea to look at the slide before surgery is performed. Um, this was an older guy, a true story, happened a few years ago in our, uh, in our uh, city. Uh, came in with this, he was a retired physicist uh, who had came in with this lesion on his ear that had been growing, and the diagnosis was rule-out squamous cell carcinoma. This is what it looked like. And uh, he had a biopsy done, and lo and behold, it was called squamous cell carcinoma. It's got this markedly epidermal hyperplasia here. It's got these tongues of epithelium. Uh, some of the cells are atypical. There's uh, some pleomorphism here, maybe even a mitotic figure or two. So this is called squamous cell carcinoma. So he was referred to a general surgeon, and uh, they were getting ready to take his ear off. You can see they've got this nice uh, little uh, outline here, and they did this beautiful uh, prosection type of uh, dissection. They're so proud of their excision. This is the external auditory canal here and all these nerves. And so he was really loved his, uh, his technique, and there's the specimen, and this is what he looked like after surgery. Well, I got a call from the General Surgery Laboratory, pathology lab, saying, hey, you know, this uh, looks like a squamous cell, but it's got all this inflammation. You see the cartilage here, and it kind of looks a little bit weird. Would you mind taking a look at the slide for us? I said, sure. So they sent the slide over for me to look at, and again, I saw all these changes here, but I did notice there was a lot of inflammation in the background, and there's some, now there's some separative granulomatous inflammation over here, some histiocytes, and we started looking more carefully. And guess what we saw? We saw organisms of leishmania in here. So this was not squamous cell carcinoma. This was leishmaniasis. And leishman, a lot of people mispronounce it as leishmaniasis. Leishman was a Scot, so he pronounced it leishmaniasis. And you can see all the organisms sitting inside these, uh, these cells here. This is what we call the marquee or the uh, Ferris wheel sign. And so we retrieved the first specimen. It wasn't in our laboratory. We looked at it and looked at it again more carefully. And lo and behold, there were some organisms in that first specimen that were missed. And so he got an overdiagnosis of squamous cell, uh, had his ear taken off. So you've got to be careful of this. And, and uh, this is why we call it the Ferris wheel sign. There's a big uh, Ferris wheel at the Texas State Fair in Dallas every year. And uh, these look like the organisms of leishmania sitting at the periphery of those histiocytes. So it turned out he'd been going down to Guatemala on mission trips. He was also an ordained minister and was going down there uh, after he'd retired. And uh, he ultimately received therapy with pentastam. And he didn't sue, believe it or not. So I guess he was a nice guy. Um, 
Regarding some biopsy reports that you're going to get back, again, uh, you know, we, I don't like to hedge. They always talk about the hedge as the pathologist's favorite flower. Um, but if you don't, you, you, we don't like to hedge if you don't have to. Uh, you don't want to say more than you know. But if you can slam dunk it like LeBron James, it's good to do that. So we, we like to do it. And I like to keep my diagnoses relatively simple with relatively few differential diagnoses. Shotguns are great when you're quail hunting or something like that. They're not so good for differential diagnosis. It's better to be laser like a sniper. Two or three, you know, rule out PRP or psoriasis. Don't say rule out PRP, psoriasis, Grover's, Darius, da, 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 da. So it's better just to have a few things down there. Um, I like to talk in the language of clinical dermatology. I don't like to, to use things to kind of obfuscate the diagnosis. Some guys use the term cicatrix for scar. Well, better just say scar. Everybody understands that. So, uh, but a lot of guys like to sort of, you know, think they're smarter if they can put something on there and kind of dazzle people with BS, and I, I really don't like to do that. Um, it's a lot easier to go from a benign diagnosis to a malignant one than vice versa, okay? So once melanoma, somebody calls spits his nevus melanoma, it's kind of like it's there forever. It's hard to get the genie back into the bottle. So it's better to sort of hedge and then do special stains deeper and say deeper sections now reveal features that are unusual, probably melanoma, that sort of thing. So beware of that. Um, a lot of guys like to use cute marketing ploys to try to get business. They put pathology, they put photographs and all this kind of stuff. You know, that's embellishment. That, that's not, that's for Christmas trees. It's not for pathology report. And then if you need a consultant, find somebody you like, um, somebody you trust, somebody you can call, somebody's there, you can talk to about it. Um, the farther away you send something in consultation, usually the more dogmatic the report and often the more erroneous. So remember that as well. Um, Talking a little bit about nails again, uh, nail unit biopsies. Uh, nails are difficult to do, especially when you're dealing with pigmented lesions. There are relatively few guys that see enough of these to get good at it. So we want to make sure that this doesn't, this should really, in my opinion, a general pathologist should never read a nail biopsy for pigmented lesion. Just, that's out. They shouldn't be doing it because they don't see enough. And we, we see probably maybe one or two a week in our lab, and we're probably one of the most prolific in the United States. So you need to really know what you're doing when you're looking at these pigmented bands, and that's because they can be very, very subtle. Uh, and if you're not sure, you may have to cut these things out. Um, this is an example of the type of biopsy to do for a nail uh, biopsy. It's best to take an incisional biopsy, reflect back the nail fold. This was a melanoma here, and take a biopsy out of that, at the nail matrix. This didn't work. They biopsied too distal. So they didn't get a diagnosis. The, the action was going on back here. And notice, this is also very important. This has a Christmas tree sign. It's tapered at the top and broad back here. This is about a six month time frame of growth here between here and here. And this lesion is growing both in horizontal fashion back in this area and then it's, it's so this was narrower six months ago. So this is a very important sign when you're looking at melanoma. If you see that sign, you see the Hutchinson sign, that's more likely to be melanoma. But you gotta take a biopsy back in this area, not too distal. Uh, this is longitudinal melanonychia, no Hutchinson sign. It's, it's uh, symmetrical, there's no tapering. Uh, this is a simple lineage of the nail unit. It just shows what almost looks like a staining with very, very few numbers of melanocytes here. Uh, this is a Fontana Masson stain for melanin, which highlights that. Uh, racial pigmentation, boy, this, it looks pretty florid, doesn't it? Lots of bands who say, gosh, if we looked at this under the microscope, there ought to be a lot of melanocytes. This is really analogous more to a freckle. It shows no increased melanocytic proliferation at all. It just shows a slight increase in melanin uh, in the epithelium. Very, very hard to see. 
So there's kind of a clinical pathologic discord, and you do a Fontana Massonstein, it just shows a slight amount of, of melanin here. So just understand that. And then melanoma, this is an obvious melanoma here. Um, sometimes the histology, that can be subtle and, and not really that florid. You think, gosh, this ought to really look horrible. Um, this shows just a subtle melanocytic proliferation in the epidermis, highlighted quite nicely with immunoperoxidase staining with S100 protein. But just beware that even melanoma can look pretty subtle uh, under the microscope. Now, alopecias, uh, again, if you look at some of the alopecias, late-stage alopecia areata, androgenetic alopecia, uh, these telogen effluvium, it's what I call involutional or senescent alopecia of older individuals. They just, these little old ladies, when they're like 70, they just kind of gradually get thinner and thinner. It's not male pattern alopecia, it's just kind of they get what's called alopecia of the elderly or senescent alopecia. Those all can look very, very similar. There's no inflammation, they get a fewer number of, of uh, viable follicles. Uh, Late-stage lichen plantar pilaris, follicular degeneration, DLE and LPP, these all can look very, very similar. Uh, best in a case like this to submit two biopsies, one for routine vertical sectioning and one for horizontal sectioning. Um, so biopsy, the active area, this, this is lichen plantar pilaris. You biopsy this, it's going to be kind of burned out, doesn't show much. Best to biopsy an area that's kind of in, in a zone where there's still some hair. And biopsy it parallel to the hair shaft. We'll do both vertical and horizontal sectioning like you see here. Um, these two diseases can look very, very similar. Uh, we usually see more uh, inflammation and more separate inflammation in, in FDS. The pattern's a little different. It tends to be more on the crown as opposed to more diffuse. Uh, the so-called footprints in the snow we see with lichen plantar pilaris versus this kind of crown-like uh, alopecia that we see in, in FDS. And you can see that the inflammation is, can be pretty subtle. Uh, lichen plantar pilaris likes the uh, infundibulum of the follicle, so it attacks this area where the uh, bulge is located. Uh, FDS will involve the lower part of the follicles more, and they both get perifollicular fibrosis. So they can look pretty similar uh, in many cases. So just be aware that there's somewhat of a limitation between what we can tell between these two. Now let's talk for the last few minutes about some melanocytic things. You probably all get a lot of biopsies of melanocytic lesions that you do, and, and probably the most important thing we have to deal with is dysplastic nevus. Uh, again, this has been a controversial topic. It's still controversial 30 years today. Uh, a lot of people ask for grading of these lesions. This is a problematic thing, and it's not like grading cervical lesions where you go mild, moderate, and severe. That's in the literature, but it doesn't progress in the same fashion like an actinic keratosis squamous cell carcinoma or cervical carcinoma uh, progresses. Lesions that are severe, actually, in many cases, are melanoma. So I personally think there should only be two grades. We have an article coming out that says that high grade and low grade, basically benign and malignant. Uh, but I don't like this idea that this is a progressive thing. We see melanomas arising in lots of nevi, congenital nevi, intradermal nevi, a lot of situation. And it's very difficult to tell when you're looking under the microscope what the patient's going to do. There are a lot of studies to show that there's very limited ability to look at a lesion under the microscope and tell where that patient's got a high or low risk for melanoma. So we see lesions that are like this. I mean, this is a fairly straightforward so-called dysplastic nevus. To me, this is mild. Dys dysplasia, quote-unquote, it doesn't really show any significant atypia. There's no mitotic figures. This guy had one lesion. This is another lesion that looks pretty banal. This guy had two or three lesions. And this was the least florid of all three of these, was a junctional nevus. This came from somebody like, that looked like this. It had lots of these lesions that actually had a melanoma. So you can't tell just looking at it under the microscope what the patient's going to do. You have to correlate it with the clinical. So somebody's got a family or personal history melanoma and has got a lot of these lesions, and they have one of these, no matter what it looks like under the microscope, you've got to monitor them and make sure that they're not anything serious. These severely dysplastic nevi, beware of this. This was a lesion that was called severe dysplastic nevus uh, a couple of years ago that we had. I saw this in consultation. I said, wow, this has got a mitotic figure here. 
It's got some pagetoid spread, some confluence of melanocytes, and maybe this is pre-existing nevus, but these kind of changes are more typical of melanoma. This is obvious melanoma right here, not dysplastic nevus, and this was called severely dysplastic nevus, okay? And it wasn't that. This was a malignant melanoma. So beware of these lesions that are called severely dysplastic nevi. These may actually be uh, malignant melanoma. So <clears throat> again, uh, I really don't think that, there's, that these really should be graded mild, moderate, and severe. You need to know what your pathologist means when they're calling these things. And beware if somebody recommends that they all get excised, okay? That's probably somebody just trying to cover their backside. And uh, these don't need to all be excised. I manage these by just following them, clinical uh, photographs in selected uh, cases. And then if anything suspicious or changing, melanoma changes, these lesions don't change, those are the ones that should be biopsied. And those, these can be followed annually if there's a low risk or up to every four months and you want to get the family members in. So do these need routine excision? The answer is no. Uh, you should selectively excise these. If you're worried about it clinically, of course, that's important. But generally, if you just get back a diagnosis, Dr. Kopf, who's probably the, the world's most uh, prolific guy on melanoma, this is what he would do when he used to practice. He would saucerize if they're benign histologically, would not re-excise. So uh, I've got about five minutes left, so we'll talk just about a few other issues regarding melanoma. It's not always easy to diagnose clinically or histologically. Um, there are a lot of things that can look less serious and be melanoma, and then there are a lot of things that really look terrible and they aren't melanoma. So just be aware of that. I won't read this list to you. But this is an example of a, of a halo nevus. And this was an example of a melanoma that had a halo around it. You see they look kind of similar. This was a solar linigo. This was melanoma in situ on sun-damaged skin. Uh, this was a blue nevus that was traumatized, looking a lot like a melanoma, like a nodular melanoma. This was a nodular melanoma this time. A thrombosed hemangioma here, a pigmented basal cell here, and a metastatic melanoma looking kind of like a blue nevus similar to those others. This, everybody in the room would be worried about melanoma here. This was a, a pigmented basal cell that was ulcerated, not a melanoma. This was melanoma looking kind of similar to that. So again, things can look similar, and there are other techniques you can do to kind of help your, your clinical diagnosis, dermoscopy, uh, Melofine, Melosciences has got some devices, some in, vocal, uh, in vivo confocal microscopy. These are new techniques that are on the horizon. Um, it's also not always easy to diagnose histologically. These are some lesions that can look very similar to melanoma as well. And I'll just show you a couple of examples. This is a lesion that looks more, more like a neurofibroma than it does like a melanoma. It's got these spindle-shaped cells diffusely in the dermis. Not really strikingly atypical, but in the epidermis overlying has got these single melanocytes. And this is an example of a rare type of melanoma known as a desmoplastic melanoma. These lesions actually look more like fibromas or scars. They're rarely diagnosed by the dermatologist. So beware if you get back something that comes in as a neurofibroma that you've done a punch on or something that looks kind of weird. Neurofibromas, again, I've seen things called neurofibroma that turn out to be surface of dermatofibrous sarcoma tuberans, other soft tissue malignant spindle cell neoplasma, so beware of that situation. This lesion looks like a squamous cell carcinoma. It's got this verrucous epithelial hyperplasia. It's also got this zone that's a little bit more poorly differentiated in here, but it's obviously got squamous morphology. So this is what it looked like clinically. This is the exact lesion, actually, of that histology. So again, it looks like it could be a basal cell or maybe an ulcerated squamous cell with some hemorrhage in it. It does have some pigment here. Well, we went back and stained it because it was poorly differentiated centrally. You can see that this part staining, the normal epidermis and some of the stuff in the dermis, but that other poorly differentiated zone was not staining. 
that stain positive with S100 protein, and this was an example of a verrucous malignant melanoma simulating a squamous cell carcinoma. Obviously, you don't want to miss that diagnosis because that's obviously got a major uh, difference in prognosis. Uh, this was an example of multiple amelanotic metastases of melanoma. Looks very much like a Spitz's nevus here. So again, these lesions commonly simulate one another. And just beware if you get a diagnosis back of a Spitz's nevus that doesn't seem to fit in an older person. That's also something to be aware of as well. My general rule for diagnosing Spitzoid lesions, in an adult, it really needs to be perfect for Spitz's nevus. In a child, it really needs to be perfect for melanoma, or it's more likely to be Spitz's nevus. And then we talked a little bit about fish. You're going to see this being done more and more. Basically, we look for chromosomes that are, uh, demonstrate aneuploidy over or underexpression. Comparative genomic hybridization, you're going to see these techniques used as well. And then last of all, uh, Clark, uh, lesion, Clark's uh, levels and measurements of melanomas, these aren't precise. These aren't like doing a blood test. So just remember that. Uh, so this is like Clark's level three and level four. I mean, these are kind of subjective to tell where this actually cuts off here. Ulceration also can be difficult to, to tell. If something's traumatized, it's not the same as an ulcerated necrotic melanoma. So I'm going to close at that point. Uh, just remember that your dermatopathologist is your, your tool. We like to work with you. Uh, never feel shy about picking up the phone and giving us a call, and we're always available to help you and do what's best for you and your patients. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk. I appreciate the attention. Might have time for a couple of questions if anybody wants to ask anything real quick. Yes. Hi. Um, we have an ongoing debate in our office about um, what to do in this situation. We have a four millimeter lesion that you take a six millimeter punch of, moderately dysplastic, but clear margins. What do you do with that? Nothing. You're fine. <laughs> You don't need to excise it. And the other thing I, I would point out, again, I didn't emphasize this a lot, but it's very subjective as what something, one guy's mild is another guy's moderate, and one guy's moderate is another guy's mild. That's extremely subjective. And so people think these are like ordering blood tests and that sort of thing, very, very subjective. So uh, to me, those are benign lesions. I don't do anything more with them personally. Hi. What's your opinion regarding the treatment of a child that comes in with a diagnosis of Spitz's nevus? Do you recommend excision or just watch? In children, I, I never recommend excision unless it's really got some strikingly atypical features. Kids can get melanoma, but it's extremely, extremely rare. And unless it's got something really bizarre atypical, I personally do not recommend excision in, in a kid. If it's an older adult and it's got some slightly funny features, those often will get re-excised. But if it's classic for Spitz's nevus in an adult, I don't recommend re-excision of that either. Okay, thank you. Would you explain a little bit about the mitotic index that was added uh, a year or so? Yeah, ago? yeah, and I, that's another one I hate. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't get in that last slide on that because we're running out of time, but um, mitotic figures, they didn't answer a lot of questions in that. We have a paper that we published in the American Journal of Dermatopathology last year where we talked about mitotic figures, and there's, they didn't talk in, in the AJCC when they looked at the really very few dermatopathologists, if any, that were on that committee. Um, they didn't talk about morphology mitoses, where they were located. Um, mitotic figures can be subjective. I mean, I sit around the microscope and my fellows say, oh, there's a mitotic figure. I say, no, that's just a smudge nucleus. So if there's a lot of subjectivity in that as well. I think we're going to see that go away with time as we get more and more genetic testing that's be able to look at the genetics of a melanoma and say this has got a, a, a bad prognostic 
profile genetically, that's going to make mitotic index go away. So something that's, and again, so subjective, melanoma can be very thick and you're just getting a small sample of it. What if there are a lot of mitotic figures in the area that wasn't sampled? So there's so many questions. I think it was not a good idea personally to put it on there. There's some institutions, if they have one mitotic figure, no matter how thick in the dermis, they do some lymphobiopsy. And of course they get negative biopsies in, in 99 times out of 100. So a lot of over-surgeries being done because of this mitotic index business. Do you feel like um, derms in general are doing a more aggressive treatment on, after it's re-excised if there's more than one mitotic figure seen? Yeah, a lot of these guys get sent to surgical oncology and they get sent to lymphobiopsies even if they're like 0.3 millimeters. It's crazy. And uh, it's just, to me, it's, that paper that we published points out that it's extremely rare to get more than one mitotic figure in the dermis and thin lesions, and the prognosis really doesn't change when there's one or two mitotic figures in a situation like that. Thanks. You're welcome. I think I'll let the next speaker come up. Thanks again for your attention. Good luck to you.